And I think uh, for our purposes this evening, we will read down through verse 7. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon thy lips. Therefore God has blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword on thy thigh, O mighty one, in thy splendor and thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let thy right hand teach thee awesome things. Thine arrows are sharp, the peoples fall under thee. Thine arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of joy above thy fellows. Well, let's pray here once again. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit's help. We pray, Father, that you would help us to leave behind uh, any thoughts that would hinder us, the worries and cares from this day, even our sins and failings. And just look to you that you might speak to us from your word. We thank you for your purposes, your good purposes toward us in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we began a few weeks ago to look at this psalm, which is a song celebrating the king's marriage. And we said that, although we don't know the earthly king that this was written about, we do know that it refers to the true king of kings because of verse 6 and 7, which are quoted in the New Testament as referring to Christ in the book of Hebrews. So this psalm, this song is addressed to the king, and it begins by extolling his, uh, his beauty, his grace, especially his gracious speech, and his blessedness. And we looked at that a few weeks ago. And then we briefly looked at verses 3 and 4, the last time that we dealt with this psalm. And we said that on top of these attributes of, of um, the beauty, thou art fairer than the sons of man, the gracious speech, and the blessedness, of the king. On top of that, we see that he is also a warrior, a victorious warrior, a mighty warrior. You might say a perfect warrior. And the psalmist says that he desires to see the king ride forth to victory and also predicts that victory. Uh, the king is petitioned here 
in verse 3, to gird on his sword and ride forth to victory. Um, we said that since this is referring to Christ, we know that if he girds on his sword and rides forth, there's no question about the outcome of the battle. He will be victorious. So that's kind of where we ended off last time. I just wanted to emphasize here um, as I begin this time that this is a common theme throughout the Bible, looking upon Christ as the victorious warrior. And uh, just a couple of examples of this. Um, Zephaniah, you know this one, um, probably know this one anyway. Chapter 3, I'll just read it to you. <clears throat> Verse 14, shout for joy, O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph, O Israel, Israel, rejoice and exalt with all your heart. See, this is very similar because this, this uh, person's heart was overflowing with a good theme, and now these people are exhorted to rejoice with all their heart, O daughter of Zion. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said of Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. And then it says this, The Lord your God is in your midst a victorious warrior. And I like the way the uh, actually the actual literal there is... Uh, a warrior that saves. Isn't that good? The Lord your God in your midst is a warrior who saves. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. So the Lord is a victorious warrior, a warrior that saves. And then in Isaiah, maybe you could look at this one. It's not quite as, quite as familiar. Isaiah 42 and verse 13. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. Again, you see the certainty of it. If, if the king girds on the sword and goes forth to battle, this king will win. There's no question about that. He will prevail. So, we want to kind of pick up from there. We said that really this, um, this should be our prayer. Verse 3 and 4, gird thy sword on thy thigh, O mighty one, in thy, in thy splendor and in thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride on victoriously. Victoriously. It should be our prayer as Christians. Um, all the enemies will fall before the conquering Christ. For what cause does he do battle? Well, it says for the cause of truth and meekness <coughs> and righteousness. Not like most of the wars that are fought 
Throughout the history of mankind, they were motivated by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. This is a valiant warrior who fights not for vain glory in any way, but for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. He not only fights for those things, he fights with those things. The gospel of Christ is a gospel of truth which promotes meekness and righteousness. Most wars not carried on in that manner or with those results. It's said that truth is always one of the first casualties of war and in war meekness is scorned. You know, only the strong survive and righteousness is usually claimed by both sides and practiced by neither. But that's not the case here. He is one who is fighting for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness and fights with truth and meekness and righteousness. Well, if he fights for the cause of those things, then he will be fighting against the deceitful, the proud, and the unrighteous. And those are the ones that the psalmist wants the king to demonstrate his great and awesome power over. This is what he's saying here. It's a little bit hard to understand in the phrase, but let thy right hand teach thee awesome things. It doesn't mean that the king had to learn anything, but, but the psalmist is saying, demonstrate for all to see your power your might, your uh, ability to prevail over unrighteousness and deceit and pride. Um, gird on your sword, mount your horse or chariot. I don't know which he was thinking of here um, when he talks about riding on victoriously. But the idea is go forth to defeat your enemies. In thy majesty, ride on victoriously. Well, that's where we ended off last time. And we want to take just this verse 5 this evening. In it, in verse 5, it seems that uh, the psalmist kind of shifts from asking the king to ride forth victoriously. He shifts from that to the actual scene of the battle. And in three short statements, we see the swiftness and the decisiveness of this battle. He started out talking about girding on his sword. Now we see the king with a bow and arrow, another weapon that the king has. And that's the, that's the verse I'd like to deal with tonight. Now again, I want to say something that I said last time. Because we're taking a passage that I think is symbolic of Christ and his bride, the church. And so I'm taking some of that symbolism and expanding on it. Now, I'm not saying that when the psalmist wrote this, he had in mind all the things I'm going to say here this evening. What I am doing is um, applying some biblical truths to the symbolic uh, aspects of this psalm. 
And again, I would caution you that when someone does that, you can go off into all kinds of different things. Uh, when you say this symbolizes this and this can symbolize that. So you have to be careful on that. And the, and the thing that I would uh, invite you to do is just to analyze whether what I'm saying is actually scriptural. See, if I'm making an application here to this section that I say is symbolic, you have to determine whether that application is really a biblical application. I believe uh, that what I'm saying is right. Again, I'm not saying that it was necessarily in the mind of the psalmist when he wrote this psalm. Uh, so that's just a kind of exhortation to check out the things you hear, especially when a person's dealing with a symbolic passage. So then let's examine these arrows mentioned in verse 5. Let, let me just read the verse again. Thine arrows are sharp. That is, the king's arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under thee. Thine arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. They're going into your, your the uh, enemy's hearts. So what are we talking about here? Let's examine these arrows. First of all, whose are they? Well, obviously, I already answered that. They're the king's. He made them. He's the one that shoots them. They're the king's arrows. How are they described? Well, there's one word at least that they're described by, and that is they're sharp. That means they're well-made. They're able to penetrate. They're able to get the job done. The arrows, thine arrows are sharp. Uh, Whom do they strike? Well, they strike the king's enemies. More on that in just a minute. Who are those enemies? Where do they strike? They strike the heart, not a limb, not some uh, area, non-vital area, no, right in the most vital organ they could possibly hit, into the heart of the king's enemies. What do they do? Well, they cause the fall of all they strike. They're effectual. They get the job done to everyone they hit. So, who are the king's enemies? Well, I would say that they are all who challenge his authority. Those who rebel against him. Those that would say, we will not have this man to rule over us. Those are the king's enemies. Or, as we said before, because he's going forth for the cause of truth and meekness, and righteousness, those that suppress the truth, who live selfishly and for themselves, and are ungodly and unrighteous. Now, I would just, as a little aside here, say we all ought to consider this to be the king's enemy is the most foolish thing you can do. Because the king's arrows are sharp and they will always hit the mark and all his enemies will most certainly be defeated. 
because this is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords we're talking about here. So to be the king's enemy is the most foolish thing anyone can do. Well, let me give some examples of some of the arrows in his quiver. Again, I'm not saying all this was in the psalmist's mind. I'm just saying I'm drawing out this symbolic passage and making application from the scriptures in general to this symbolic passage here. So, we're looking at some of the arrows in the king's quiver. First of all, the arrow of temporal judgments, that is, judgments in this life. And I would divide that into two sections. First, national and then individual. Temporal judgments, judgments in this lifetime right now. National. Um, example would be Sodom and Gomorrah. Not a nation, but a kind of a city-state situation. We're talking, when I say natu- national, I'm talking about a people group. We have Sodom and Gomorrah judged in this life. You know, another example would be Egypt in the time of Mo- Moses. Those plagues that was upon the nation. Um, judgment coming upon the nation in this life. <coughs> So that can be things like famine or pestilence or attacks from another nation or group. Yet it is an arrow of God against sin, you see, against his enemies. That's what we're talking about here. Um, Let's look at Deuteronomy 32. Just a, a... couple of verses here. I will heap misfortunes on them. I will use my arrows on them. What's he talking about? They shall be wasted by famine and consumed by plague, a bitter destruction, and the teeth of beasts I will send upon them with the venom of crawling things of the dust. Outside the sword will bereave and inside terror, both young man and virgin, and nursling with a man of gray hair. So he's talking about judgment coming upon a people group in this life, and he's using things like famine and plague and destruction. God often punishes national sins with national calamities. Not always can we make just draw a direct line between the national sin and some calamity, But there is that general principle. This is what we're saying here. There is this general principle. We cannot always determine where and how he does this. But looking back, especially looking back over history, we can see this truth demonstrated over and over. I was thinking today about uh, even Abraham Lincoln in his second inaugural address recognized this. I was going to read some of it to you, but I don't think I'll do that. Just to say that he really believed that the ultimate explanation of the Civil War was it was a judgment of God upon America, both sides, north and south, for the evil of slavery. It was a judgment because of sin, you see. This is what we're talking about. National judgment in this life. Um, 
One person said that the history of the world is the judgment of the world. That's certainly one aspect of the history of the world. It's also also the um, working of God's grace in Christ in this world. But but why was that? Because there there was sin in the world, and God was going to bring and was bringing judgment upon the world. So there's a real sense in which the history of the world is the judgment of the world. History shows us national pride and arrogance and ungodliness and suppression of of truth being struck by the arrow of God's temporal judgment over and over and over again. You see that happening. God is engaged in historical judgments of men and nations all down through history. God's role in these judgments usually escapes the notice of the world, but discerning believers will see God's hand in world affairs. You know, the world doesn't look at it this way. But the Christian says, God's doing something here. And very often it has to do with the arrow of his temporal judgments in this life. Um, Well, that's the one area. In, in terms of temporal judgments and the, the uh, national. But we also see the arrow of temporal judgment in individual lives. Let's turn to the New Testament here and look at Acts chapter 12. Just one uh, example of this, of a, of a well-known leader uh, in the time of the early church. Acts chapter 12 and uh, verse 21. And on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them, the peoples that were gathered there. And the people kept crying out the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. Well, that was a very clear, uh, almost immediate uh, temporal judgment upon this ungodly ruler. Um, It was immediate and obvious, but God's temporal judgment on individuals is not always like that. It's not always immediate. Sometimes it's kind of long-term. And it's not always so obvious as this was. It doesn't always involve uh, death like this. Take, for example, the lives of many of those who are involved in what has been called the sexual revolution in America. Now, that began in the 1960s and 70s and has now permeated our society. We are just saturated with this so-called sexual revolution. And it really was a rebellion against God and His truth and His ways. Now let me just show you. Let me just uh, give some statistics here that I was made aware of not too long ago. 
1950, there were five sexually transmitted diseases, and they were all pretty much curable. That's in 1950. Now, you have this so-called sexual revolution, and now there are 30 sexually transmitted diseases, and 30% of them are incurable. Once you've got them, you've got them for life, and some of them will kill you. When I graduated from high school in 1966, one in 32 graduates of high school would have had a sexually transmitted disease. Today, over one-fourth of high school graduates have a sexually transmitted disease. When I graduated, nobody even heard of AIDS. Now, thousands of people are dying every year from AIDS. Well, why do I say all that? Because these things are arrows of God, you see. They're temporal judgments in this life on individuals because of sin. As Paul puts it in Romans 1, related to sexual sin, and this is just one area. I mean, this is just, I mean, you could go off into many different areas of, of temporal judgment. But in related to sexual sin, he says, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, again, I think, you know, it's good to make the qualification here, make sure I'm not misunderstood. Not every sickness or calamity is a result of an individual's sin, but the general principle of you reap what you sow is true of individuals and nations in the area of God's temporal judgment of sin. <clears throat> uh, maybe one more verse, uh, Psalm 7. <clears throat> Verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, uh, Psalm 7 and verse, uh, that was verse 11, verse 12. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. So there's the, the arrows again. And I think that we need to realize that much of what happens in this life is a result of God's arrow of temporal judgment coming upon sin. In this life we're talking about many of the sicknesses and calamities. So, those are the two areas um, related to God's temporal judgment in this life, national and individual. Yet, it is true that it often seems that the wicked prosper and evil triumphs. And in some cases anyway, a person that has lived an ungodly life seems to be able to go all the way through this life without very much temporal judgment 
seems like that arrow never really hits him. Well, God has an even sharper arrow to use, and that is the arrow of God's final judgment. Those who think that they can ignore God's truth all their lives will find Christ to be a fierce warrior in the day of judgment. On that day, all remaining opposition will be crushed. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 32 again. Deuteronomy 32 and beginning with 39. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift up my hand to the heavens, and I say, as I live forever, If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand take hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries. I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will He will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. There will be a day you can be sure that the arrow of God will hit every adversary of God. None will escape. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. We're told that in John chapter 5, verse 20. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ There will be a day when God will judge the secrets of men's hearts by Christ Jesus. That arrow, no, no heart is going to avoid this arrow. None. He will judge the secrets of men's hearts by Christ Jesus. The arrows of the king will go straight to the heart on that great day. So that is an even sharper arrow than the temporal judgment. But there is another arrow, and this is the one I want to close with. And you could go off into some other areas on this also, but these are the three I want to deal with tonight. And this will be the last one. The arrow of conviction of sin in this life. Because this is really the one that uh, I think... As Christians, we like to to think on the most. Christ's arrow can pierce the hardest heart of any enemy. You know, it says in Romans 5.10, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. While we were enemies. The king's enemies, some of the king's enemies, are reconciled through the death of his Son. You have the great example of Saul of Tarsus. If there, if there was a hard heart, Saul riding down that road to Damascus, but the king's arrow hits him and turns him, knocks him off his horse, turns him around, and Saul becomes Paul. And he is just one 
famous example of millions of the king's enemies that have been made loyal subjects as the arrow of subduing grace sinks deep into their hearts. Um, Acts 2, 36 is an example of what we're talking about here. Acts 2, verse 36. Peter's preaching here. And towards the end of his message, it says this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. This is the end of his sermon, and God sends his arrow of conviction to the people that were hearing this. And here's what happens. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And he tells them to repent. Believe on Christ. The arrow of the conviction of sin. So Christ is a victorious warrior because his arrows always strike the heart. Some of the, some of the king's enemies are made willing subjects because of this arrow of the conviction of sin. God sometimes uses that arrow of even individual temporal judgment to cause people to realize they need God. Sometimes he even uses the arrow of, the, of national judgment uh, I think there were revivals, you know, we talked about the Civil War and Lincoln saying this is a judgment of God. There were revivals in both the northern and southern armies. God was using even this national calamity, this judgment upon the nation uh, to bring people to repentance. He used it in the lives of thousands of, of soldiers both for the north and the south. Well, Christ is the victorious warrior spoken of in this psalm. He has conquered. 2,000 years ago, he lived the sinless life. He died for the sins of the world and rose again to accomplish redemption. So he has conquered. He is conquering right now. His arrows of the conviction of sin are going into the hearts of his enemies. And he will conquer at the end of the age when he comes again and his enemies are made a footstool for his feet in the day of judgment. Well, after that, if we look at the broad scheme of things, after that comes the marriage supper of the king and his bride. And that's what some of the rest of this psalm has to do with. And we hope to, to go on into that. But first, there's a little more description of the king in verses 6 and 7. And that's what we'll, uh, we'll look at next time. So, the arrows. Thine arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under thee. Thine arrows are in the heart 
of the king's enemy.